Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. And we are now in our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53, which is where this season begins and where we set the stage for the many dark tales ahead. In each episode of the season, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city we believe is the most haunted in America. So lock all the doors, put away the knives, and if anyone knocks, whatever you do, don't let them in. New Orleans is a city that was literally born in sin. From the original charters that were based on fraud to the emptying of the French prisons to provide settlers to the region. There was widespread government corruption, gaudy social functions, rampant prostitution, and frequent lapses in any civilized moral code. There's no question that New Orleans has a long and very colorful history of crime and vice. The corruption began during the days of French rule and continued while the city was controlled by Spain. Vice flourished during the three years between 1800 and 1803, and then city was neither French nor Spanish. And when a general sense of freedom allowed and encouraged the arrival of vagabonds and adventurers from all parts of the world. In the end, it would be as property of the United States, though, that New Orleans would embark upon its golden age of crime, murder, and spectacular wickedness when it would achieve its status as America's leading city of sin. As New Orleans grew into a great American city in the middle 19th century, crime of every description began to increase. With money and wealth flowing into the city, the underworld grew richer and more powerful. During the 20 years before the Civil War and for an even longer period after, The newspapers were constantly filled with reports of robberies, assaults, and murders. The New Orleans correspondent for the New York Tribune wrote in January 1855, quote, Murders here are an everyday occurrence, and the papers daily give details of the same. A thousand murders might be committed in New Orleans, and if the murders could not be found on the spot, our authorities would never afterward make any effort to have them punished. The city, the reporter said, was suffering under a, quote, reign of terror. By the late 1850s, it was reported that inquests were held for as many as two murder victims each week and that it was common knowledge that at least two-thirds of the homicides committed in the underworld districts were never reported to the police and the bodies of the victims, well, they were just never found. In 1861, the criminal sheriff of the Orleans Parish was quoted as saying that the place was, quote, a perfect hell on earth and that nothing could put an end to the murders, manslaughters, and deadly assaults till it was made penal to carry arms. No permit was required for the possession of firearms in those days, and men of all classes habitually carried weapons to protect their lives and property. Criminals and ruffians had turned New Orleans into what the sheriff colorfully described as, quote, hell on earth. Outlaws and lawbreakers found refuge in scores of cheap taverns, dance houses, bordellos, and concert saloons, which infested the French Quarter and the area above Canal Street. Probably no other city in the United States was home to as many unsavory resorts in proportion to its number of citizens. 
On St. Charles Avenue alone between Canal Street and Lafayette Square, there were 45 places where liquor was sold and nearly all of them were disreputable. Similar congestions of underworld spots appeared in other places, notably along Gallatin Street in the French Quarter and on Garreau Street in the American section. Even in neighborhoods where grocery stores outnumbered taverns, the stores still managed to sell more whiskey than food. And where there is whiskey and women, there's murder. And where there's murder, well, ghosts and hauntings are sure to follow. Undoubtedly, the most startling stories of ghosts and crime in New Orleans came from within the walls of the old Carrollton Jail. In 1898 and 1899, there were so many stories told about the place being haunted that there seems to be little doubt that something very strange was recurring in the building. To make matters even more credible, the majority of the witnesses who experienced these bizarre events were hard-boiled, no-nonsense officers of the law. Their testimonies to the events in question make the eerie tales all the more chilling. This old structure, built around 1850, was officially known as the Jefferson Parish Prison, but more commonly was simply called the Carrollton Jail. Carrollton itself had come into existence around 1833 when a man named Charles Zimple laid out the town about five miles from the boundary of New Orleans. Zimple dubbed the new city Carrollton after General William Carroll, a hero of the Battle of New Orleans. He had been encamped on the site of the future town with an army of Tennessee volunteers while awaiting orders from Andrew Jackson. Two years later, the New Orleans and Carrollton Railroad was constructed to connect the city and the small town. The railroad is actually still used today as the St. Charles Avenue streetcar line. It's the oldest continually operating line of public transportation in America. And everyone who visits New Orleans owes it to himself to at least once take a trip on one of the famous streetcars. Well, the town grew rapidly, and by 1841, it was officially incorporated. Later in 1852, it was named the county seat of Jefferson Parish, and a city hall and courthouse were built. They remain standing to this day, even though New Orleans eventually annexed the city in 1874. One part of the administrative buildings was the parish prison. It stood on the corner of Hampson and Short Streets and served as a jail until it was demolished in 1937. The brick building stood two stories tall and boasted large doorways and heavily barred windows. Most called it a, quote, bleak and hideous place. And it was said that many of the inmates that were imprisoned here never left. Suicides were apparently quite frequent and disease and the lack of medical care added to the death toll. Violence, as with any prison, was also common. Still more of the prisoners had their fates decided on the gallows that were located in the central courtyard. Many convicted thieves, rapists, and murderers met justice at the end of the rope after being imprisoned in the narrow stone cells of the jail. One lynching even took place in the courtyard after outraged citizens captured two men who had raped and butchered a little girl in the area. These violent deaths and terrible events created a haunting at the Carrollton Jail, a haunting that became a matter of public and official record. More than 50 years after the building was erected, the ghostly happenings of the jail became so persistent that they gained the attention of the newspapers of the day. On October 9, 1899, the first detailed reports about the supernatural in the parish prison appeared in print. At that time, the prison was under the authority of Sergeant William Clifton, the police commander of the district. He had served with distinction for many years with the New Orleans Police Department and had taken over command of the jail in 1898. He was well-respected and admired by those who served under him, which included a clerk, a deputy, two doormen, and eight patrolmen. 
One summer evening, two men and a woman stopped by the jail to chat with Clifton. They came in through the front entrance to the prison, which opened into a wide hallway. On the left side of the entryway was a door that opened into Sergeant Clifton's office. It was a sparsely furnished room with a desk, a washstand, a sofa, and a few chairs. Behind Clifton's office with a narrow passage between them was the clerk's office. In this room were more desks and chairs and a wooden railing that divided the office in two. As the woman who accompanied the men leaned against a wall in the office, she was immediately shoved out of the room as though someone had struck her violently. She spun into the hallway and was sent sprawling onto the floor. Her eyes were wide with shock and she cried out, something pushed me. It pushed my shoulder away from the wall. Clifton and the other men laughed and one of them made a joke about her getting old. A little angry about the fact they didn't believe her, she leaned against the wall again. In seconds, she was sent reeling into the center of the room. Her body was flung into the group of men who were standing there and she was forced to take hold of them to keep from falling down. This time her face was pale with fear. She didn't care whether the others laughed or not. She was convinced that something was in the wall. Well, each of the men, including Sergeant Clifton, took turns leaning against the same spot on the wall. To their surprise, each of them was shoved away from it and toward the center of the office. They carefully examined both sides of the wall but could find nothing to explain the strange event. Clifton couldn't imagine what would be causing this strange effect, but then he remembered a story that one of his men had told him. It was about an incident that occurred several years before, prior to his taking over command of the prison. A murderer who had been charged with killing his wife and boiling her body in lye to make soap from her corpse, eh, some imagination, he was charged with killing his wife and was brought to the jail. According to the story, a number of angry police officers beat the man to death in the hallway outside what was now Clifton's office, and his body was left exactly at the spot where the strange effect was occurring with the wall. Could this man's ghost somehow be causing this to happen? Clifton dismissed this idea as nonsense, convinced there must be a logical explanation for what was taking place. However, events that followed caused him to think differently. A day or so later, Clifton was in his office with Corporal Perez, one of the patrolmen for the district. Their conversation turned to the portrait of General Beauregard that Clifton had hanging on his wall. He had always expressed admiration for the general, and in the course of the discussion, he turned to the portrait and gave it a quick, almost comical salute. Immediately, with a great crash, the picture fell to the floor. At the same time, the washstand with its bowl and pitcher jumped forward and turned over. Strangely, nothing was broken, including the glass in the frame. Even stranger, the heavy cord by which the portrait was hung was found to be in perfect condition. The nail in the wall was solid and even slanted upward. The two men, after close examination, could find no reason for the portrait to have fallen. Well, the following night, Clifton and Perez were telling some of the other officers about the odd happening. As he demonstrated what had occurred, he saluted the portrait once again. As soon as he did, the mirror that hung just below the general's picture flew off the wall. It also smashed into the wooden washstand, knocking everything to the floor. This time, the wash basin shattered into dozens of pieces, but everything else remained intact. Clifton examined the mirror hanger and found it to be as strong as the one holding the portrait. He later reported, quote, It seemed as though invisible ears had been listening and that unseen hands pushed the things from the wall. I know that the portrait and the mirror could not have fallen unaided. Well, several nights later, Clifton was sitting at his desk when he was suddenly grabbed by the shoulders and his chair was spun completely around. At first, he thought it was one of his men playing a joke, but when he turned to confront them, 
He found no one there. The room was fully lit and he could find no one in the room or in the hallway. He questioned the doorman who replied that no one had come in the door. Well, the sofa in Clifton's office was frequently used by patrolmen as a place to catch up on much needed sleep during long shifts. One night, Officer Dell, who drove the patrol wagon, came in for a short nap. He'd no sooner stretched himself out on the sofa before it lurched forward and away from the wall. The bulky piece of furniture slid about three feet and then suddenly reversed direction and thudded against the wall again. This was the same wall where the man had been beaten to death and where the strange effect occurred that shoved the woman, Clifton, and the other men to the floor. Well, not long after that, another officer tried to rest on the couch. This time, it not only slid out into the room, but it also tilted sharply and bounced the officer off in such a way that he collided with the corner of Clifton's desk and gashed his head open. Hearing his cry, Clifton rushed to his aid and arrived just in time to see the couch sliding back up against the wall. The next night, another policeman, who made it clear he didn't believe in ghosts, lay down on the couch in the presence of a number of other officers. Suddenly, the couch tipped up and the patrolman fell onto the floor. After that, the men began to avoid the couch until someone moved it to another part of the room. At that point, the couch was again considered safe, but the patrolman avoided that particular wall of the office for quite some time. In October of that same year, a mounted officer named Jules Acoin came into Sergeant Clifton's office to make a report. Clifton had stepped out for a few moments and Jules stood waiting for him near the desk. He saw a flash of movement out of the corner of his eye and looked up quickly at a large lithograph portrait of Admiral Dewey, a Spanish-American war hero that had been pasted on the wall. The same wall that had been the cause of so much strange activity in the office. Before his eyes, he saw the portrait begin to spin like a wheel. It was as though someone had placed a nail through the center of the picture and then started rotating it, an act that would have been impossible since it was plastered to the wall with glue. Well, Jules was stunned for a moment, and then he ran out of the quarter and began shouting for his fellow officers. Those who were nearby came on the run, including Sergeant Clifton. As the men hurried into the office, they saw that the portrait had stopped moving and was in fact stuck to the wall again, just as it had been. Jules explained what he'd seen in the other men, having already witnessed odd events for themselves. Well, they had no reason to doubt him. In time, it began to be realized that the spirit of the wife killer was not the only ghost who haunted the prison. All the men who were stationed there reported weird and unexplainable noises, furniture and small objects moving about by themselves and falling without assistance, lights that turned on and off, and much more. It's not surprising that these bizarre happenings tended to keep everyone on edge. Requests for transfers to other precincts were frequently filed by officers who were stationed at the Carrollton Jail. One night in the autumn of 1899, Corporal Harry Hyatt heard footsteps in a nearby hallway. He stepped to the door of Clifton's office and looked around. Although he could still hear the sound of someone walking, he looked both ways up and down the corridor, but saw there was no one there. Well, the footsteps continued to sound and Hyatt noticed there was something odd about them. It seemed that each solid step was accompanied by another step that dragged, as though taken by a man who was lame. Hyatt also noticed the quarter seemed to be filled with a faint smell of cigar smoke. Finally, he left the doorway and walked to the front entrance area of the building. He asked the doorman, Officer Foster, if he'd seen anyone come in. Well, he shook his head until Hyatt described the sound he'd heard in the hall. Well, Foster grinned at his friend and suggested, hey, maybe it was Harvey come back. Well, Harvey Brewer, a gambler and former prisoner at the jail, had been a gigantic man who walked with a severe limp. This impairment did not stop him, though, from killing two racehorse jockeys 
by breaking their necks with his bare hands. He also cut the tongues out of their horses. Apparently, he'd wagered a small fortune betting on both of them and was, well, <laughs> angry when they lost. Harvey had been brought to the jail and had last seen standing in the corridor in handcuffs with the cold stump of a cigar clenched between his teeth. Well, he escaped soon after and was never captured. His escape from the jail left two dead guards and a mystery behind. Well, when Hyatt heard this from his friend Foster, he shook his head and said, nope, he won't come back to see the inside of this jail again. Well, that evening, Hyatt picked up an evening newspaper and found a story about a gigantic man named Robert Brewer, who had been found dead in a Pennsylvania town. He had been blind and lame, but made a small living selling newspapers. After his death, they found a packet of papers among his effects that showed that his real name was, you guessed it, Harvey Brewer. The news story stated he was wanted in New Orleans for four murders and elsewhere for other crimes. That was when Harry Hyatt realized that perhaps Harvey had come back to the old prison after all. Well, the following night, at the same time, Hyatt again heard the shambling footsteps in the hallway. They plodded back and forth, back and forth. Well, Hyatt went to the door when there was still no one to be seen, and he later recalled that he muttered out loud to the empty corridor, quote, okay, Harvey, you can stop your pacing and smoke your cigar now. Well, the footsteps suddenly stopped. From out of thin air, Hyatt swore a great cloud of tobacco smoke appeared about three feet away. It swirled and then slowly lifted off toward the ceiling and disappeared. On other occasions, iron paperweights were raised from desks and flung at officers. Icy cold chills appeared without explanation and always there were the ghostly footsteps. Not Harvey's shuffling limp, but others that walked throughout the building. They paced the corridors, they went up and down the stairs, and one of the places especially affected by the sounds was the second floor courtroom. That room had been refurbished from a row of condemned cells that had once been located there. In these cages were kept the men who would soon die on the gallows. One night, very late, the footsteps became unusually loud and several officers followed them upstairs and into the courtroom. The room was eerie and silent, except for the tapping of the phantom boots. They circled the room as the police officer stood back and listened. Then the footsteps stopped abruptly and the docket book, which was thick and weighed many pounds, flew from the judge's desk and crashed to the floor with such force that Sergeant Clifton heard it from downstairs. Well, the footsteps were heard no more that night, but Clifton had another encounter of his own that must have left him questioning the wisdom of remaining in command of the prison. In the early morning hours, he was seated at his desk when he suddenly felt the grip of strong hands around his throat. He could feel the air being crushed out of him, and he threw his arms up to ward off the attacker. But his hands struck nothing, but when he waved his arms, the attack immediately stopped. Clifton whirled around in his chair, but there was no one behind him. No living person had entered his office, and yet the marks of the hands could clearly be seen on his neck. In fact, the bruises remained visible for some days after. Well, one afternoon, two young girls appeared outside the sergeant's office and were spotted by Officer Foster. Since the sergeant wasn't in, he went over to speak to them. As he got close, they vanished before his eyes. Officers believed they were the ghosts of two young women who had been in prison there for carving out the liver of their shared lover. Yikes. On another occasion, Foster also reported seeing a former prison officer named Sergeant Shoemaker standing alone in Clifton's office. The man stood near the desk for a moment, then bowed his head and walked slowly away. He got to within a foot of the sofa and then he disappeared. Now, at the time of the sighting, 
Sergeant Shoemaker had been dead for over a year. Stories and reports from the prisoners testified to the fact that officials were not the only ones to be bothered by the ghosts at the jail. Cell number three became notorious for the weird events that occurred inside of it. One night, a prisoner named Charles Marquez was brought in. All the other cells were full, so he was placed in number three. The next morning, guards found Marquez lying on the floor of his cell, unable to stand and scarcely able to speak. His face was a mass of cuts and bruises, and he looked as though he'd been badly beaten. Well, Clifton first assumed that one of the officers had worked the man over, which, you know, really would not have been unusual in those days. But Marquez, once his wounds were treated, quickly convinced him otherwise. He claimed that he'd been beaten by unseen hands, that he'd been punched, kicked, and pushed against the wall. He never saw his assailants, and he never accused the prison's officers of giving him his beating. While other prisoners got their own taste of cell number three. Every criminal who was put into it had the same tale to tell the next day, and all of them had bruises and cuts to show that their claims were apparently true. No one outside the cell ever heard a thing, yet the occupant was always in rough shape the next morning and usually babbling about ghosts and monsters. It was later discovered that many years before, on a night when the prison was very crowded, three murderers were placed in cell number three together. According to the story, they fought all night, each man punching, biting, and kicking the others. In the morning, two of them were dead, and the third died before a priest could be called for him. Prison officials began to believe that perhaps one or all of these men's ghosts had remained behind in the jail. In 1937, the Carrollton Jail was finally torn down. Through its long life, the prison has been the scene of many ghostly tales. Legend even had it when the workmen demolished the structure, human shapes writhed in the clouds of dust, as though the creatures that had haunted the place now reveled in its destruction. Boy, this is New Orleans. For years afterward, people in the area also claimed to hear the spectral sound of the gallows trap as it opened and sent another condemned man to his death. And there are some older residents of the area that claim the sounds of the gallows can still be heard today. If I had to choose a favorite story of murder, mutilation, and ghosts from New Orleans history, it would undoubtedly be the story of the Sultan's Palace. It's a story that has a little bit of everything. Sex, pirates, foreign intrigue, blood pouring into the street, hacked off limbs, brutal revenge, and well, did I mention sex? Anyway, it's a great story, and the mansion has long been known as one of the French Quarter's most imposing buildings and has played a starring role on the list of the city's legends and mysteries. As I said, it's a great story, but, well, as we sometimes find, New Orleans never lets the truth get in the way of a good story. A dentist named Dr. Joseph Gardet built the house at the corner of Orleans and Dauphine Street in the French Quarter in 1836. It was then one of the tallest buildings in the city. A few years after it was completed, the house was sold to a wealthy Creole man named Jean-Baptiste Lepre. He made the house even more extravagant by adding the cast iron grillwork to the balconies, which has since become the mansion's most distinguishing feature. With its top floor ballroom and spacious galleries, the house came to be regarded as one of the most luxurious mansions in New Orleans. Not surprisingly, it became the center of Creole culture in the French Quarter in the middle 1800s. Unfortunately, the wealth and power of many of the Creole families started to decline in the second half of the century, leading many to scandal and ruin. Lepre was one of those who lost most of his fortune, and he found that he was forced to rent out his beautiful home in 1878. 
His tenant was a mysterious Turk who claimed to be a deposed sultan of some distant land. A short time before a vessel of war had arrived in New Orleans Harbor at night, men came and went from the ship on official business, and finally a wealthy Asian man dressed in regal costume came ashore and was received with great respect by the city officials. Lepre was called into a private conference and was asked if his property might be available for lease. He agreed to the generous terms offered, not realizing the danger he was bringing to the mansion. According to what he could learn, the Sultan was not actually the deposed ruler of some distant Asian country, but the brother of the ruler. It seemed that the Sultan had fled the land with his brother's favorite wife. He'd hidden away in Europe for a time and then had sailed for New Orleans. He'd brought with him his entire entourage, including armed guards and a harem of more than a dozen women of all ages and descriptions. Well, Lepre had to take his wife and children along with all of their belongings and vacate the house completely. They went to live on their plantation while the Sultan went about transforming the house into an Eastern pleasure palace. The Turk had transported with him a fortune in gold and established a line of credit at all the banks. He used his wealth to begin work on the mansion. Soon the floors were covered with carpets from Persia. Soft couches were embroidered with colorful patterns. Cushions were piled high in the corners and intricately carved furniture, chairs, and chests were picked up from the docks. Soon the move was complete and the candles were lit and the braziers were heated to warm the rooms. The smell of heavy incense and opium filled the air and passers-by could hear the laughter of the women and their soft voices as they walked in the courtyard each day. According to one writer, quote, their foreign tongues tantalized the neighborhood men, as did the rustle of their rare silk garments. And yet no one ever saw these beautiful women. Complete privacy was maintained at all times. The doors and windows were covered and blocked. The gated front portal was never opened, and men patrolled the grounds with curved daggers in their belts. The iron gates around the property were chained and locked, and the grand mansion had become a fortress. Well, neighbors began to talk, their curiosity aroused by the strange and forbidding changes to the house. A few weeks before, the place had been open and filled with light, but now it was dark and menacing. Well, they wouldn't have much time to ponder these changes, though, for terrible and bloody events were soon to take place. A few months passed, and one night a terrible storm crashed over the city. Under the cover of darkness, an unfamiliar ship with a strange crescent banner sailed into the harbor. In the morning, it was gone, and the storm had gone with it. That morning, neighbors passing by the mansion noticed that trickles of blood were running out from under the iron gates. The authorities were summoned but could raise no one, so they forced open the doors and went inside. They found the gate to the courtyard standing wide open on its hinges and muddy footprints leading in and out of the house. The officers and the neighborhood curiosity seekers got the first hint at the horror that awaited them inside the house when they stumbled over the bloody corpses of three servants who had been slashed with swords and left for dead in the courtyard. They cautiously entered the house and found absolute carnage. A massacre had occurred at the mansion. Blood spattered the floors and walls. Headless bodies and amputated limbs were scattered about, all of them butchered by sword or axe. No room was without a horrific scene. The bodies and limbs were flung about, mutilated and burned in such a way it was impossible to tell which body part belonged to which person. No exact count of the dead was ever determined, and the horror didn't stop with murder. The beautiful harem girls, the sultan's children, and even the guards 
have been raped and subjected to vile sexual assaults. The scandal was so horrendous that the details of that night have still not been completely chronicled to this day. The Sultan's mutilated body was found in the garden where he had been buried alive. In his struggle to free himself from the ground, he managed to partially tear himself from the grave, but it wasn't enough. He choked to death on mouthfuls of dirt. Over his hasty grave, a letter had been left bearing an inscription in Arabic that read, quote, The justice of heaven is satisfied, and the date tree shall grow on the traitor's tomb. It is said that a tall tree did indeed grow on this spot and was known locally as the Tree of Death. While the tree has long ago perished, the legends of the house remain. The identity of the murders was never discovered. Some say they were members of some pirate's crew who had business with the mysterious Sultan, while others say the murders were the work of the Turk's brother seeking revenge for the theft of his wife and his family wealth. But we'll never know for sure who committed the horrible murders at the Sultan's palace because honestly, we don't even know if those murders took place. Oh man. The first mention I could find about the murder of a mysterious sultan in New Orleans comes from an 1867 book by Charles Garry called The History of Louisiana. It mentions the house and the sultan who was a quote, great personage of the Ottoman Empire, but the only murder mentioned was that of the sultan himself, who was killed after a ship appeared that was filled with, and I love this quote, a body of men who wore the scowling appearance of malefactors and ministers of blood which would make a great band name, by the way. The story also appears in the 1922 book Legends of Louisiana by Helen Pritkin Schertz. It's basically the same story, but this time the intruders kill more people. The milkman is credited with first seeing the blood and going inside to find the sultan on a couch with his head cut off and five dead harem girls. Well, the story became part of the bloody lore of New Orleans, but want to guess where it never appeared? In the newspapers or in the police records. The story was never officially recorded anywhere. Now, does that mean it didn't happen? Well, I don't know. It obviously got started somehow, but how much of it is truth and how much is legend? Well, we're, we're never going to know for sure. But even if the sensational tales of the Sultan's Palace don't line up perfectly with history, there is one thing we do know. Tales of a haunting in the mansion have been reported for more than a century and a half. For many years, the mansion was almost a slum dwelling as the owners did little to maintain the place. It was rented out as apartments for a time and during the great influx of Italian immigrants in the late 1800s, it was during this period of its worst decay that an Italian woman who lived there made a living washing clothes. She would always hang them out to dry on the top gallery. One day, she fell over the ironwork to the pavement below and was instantly killed. Now, she most likely leaned back too far while hanging the clothes on the line, but other tenants in the building blamed the spirits for her death. She was pushed, they claimed. In 1949, the building housed the New Orleans Academy of Art for a brief time, but the whispers of ghosts and hauntings never really stopped. The story said that strange sounds could often be heard there at night, like soft music from flutes and the tap of footsteps on the stairs. It's also believed that the faces of women in the Sultan's harem could sometimes be seen peering out the windows on the upper floor. Screams, moans, and frantic running sounds were also commonly reported. By the 1950s, the house was once again an apartment building. It was divided into nine units, of several of which were two-storied. And still, the stories of ghosts continued. In a newspaper interview, one tenant of the house stated that she had been startled numerous times by a man in a garish oriental costume. The tenant, Virgie Poston, rented the downstairs front apartment. 
I didn't know about the legend or even that the place was supposed to be haunted, recalled Poston, who later became a successful dancer and choreographer in the United States and internationally. And she added, I was just starting out in my career and the cheap rent appealed to me. Well, she soon learned that strange things were occurring in the building. One day, the man in the robe suddenly appeared in her apartment. She vividly recalled the incident. My two-room apartment had only one door, which opened into the main hall, only a few yards from the foot of an enormous central staircase that wound its way up to the floors above. I always kept it locked, and even if whoever had had a key, I think I would have at least heard it turning in the lock. Yet there was nothing, only silence. One minute he was there, the next he was gone. He didn't seem hostile, he just stood there and looked at me, but it was terribly eerie and nerve-wracking. Poston saw the man a second time a short time later. She woke up and he was standing at the end of her bed. And she said, there was no sign of him when I turned on the lights and got up to check, but I abandoned everything there the next day and went to stay temporarily with a girlfriend until I could find another place to live. A few days later, she had her last and most terrifying experience. She and her girlfriend stopped by the apartment to get some of her things. She remembered what happened next. We were standing in the dimly lit hallway in the empty house as I locked the door, when we suddenly heard a blood-curdling scream come out of the inky blackness somewhere at the top of the staircase just a few feet from us. It was petrifying, a long, shrill scream that ended in a horrible gurgle. We ran as if the devil himself were after us to the street door. For a moment, we even got wedged in the doorway as both of us tried to get out at the same time. We laugh about it today, but it was pretty frightening at the moment. The very next day, I got my things out of there. In 1966, the house was purchased by Jean D'Amico and her husband Frank and a partner, Anthony Vesich Jr. The house was in bad shape and desperately needed repairs. They decided to restore the mansion and convert it into luxury apartments. Soon after, neighbors began to tell Jean about the house's bizarre history and the bloody incidents that had taken place there. Jean D'Amico recalled, People would look a little curiously at us whenever they knew we were the owners. Some even told me how they used to cross the street and pass it on the other side. However, she dismissed the stories as nothing more than supernatural gossip until she experienced something there for herself. One night while trying to sleep, Jean sensed a presence in the room with her. She looked up and saw a man standing at the end of the bed. Thinking my eyes were playing tricks on me, I closed them for a moment and then opened them again to refocus, but the figure was still there. When the form suddenly began to move toward my side of the bed, I panicked and turned on the light on my night table. Imagine my surprise when there was no one there. My husband laughed at me when I told him, but I know I saw somebody. Even today, the Sultan's Palace remains a curious and intriguing mystery of New Orleans and the French Quarter. It's now owned by Nina Nevins, and it's divided into six apartments. When the building went up for sale, she Googled it and saw that it was, quote, a harem of horror, as she called it. But she fell in love with the house and knew she wanted to own it. She since decided that she doesn't believe all the stories about the Sultan and the murders, but does admit there are some odd occurrences in the place. She says the strangest thing is when keys to the apartments go missing and simply don't show up again. She added, it's weird, but I never feel alone in the building. Well, maybe it's an early not so weird. We may never know all the secrets of the Sultan's palace, but the stories will always be there. Are they too good to be true? Perhaps. But who knows what this place might say if these crumbling walls could talk. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? 
And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise in a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words come There's one thing that the American Hauntings podcast knows about, and that's mothers. We featured a lot of great mothers in a lot of our episodes. Pearl Curran, Julia Lemp, Sarah Moore, Marie Laveau, Jane Mansfield, Tamsin Donner, Delphine LaLaurie, Belle Gunness. Okay, maybe leave out those last two. But what I'm saying is that with Mother's Day coming soon, you need a truly special gift for your mom because, well, she's not Belle Gunness. So let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that literally turns your mom's life story into a book. So here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your mom a question in her email, the same way she sends you questions about your dating life or when you plan to give her grandkids. Anyway, these can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. She replies by either typing in the answers or by recording her own voice. Then mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a keepsake book, and they can create an audiobook that uses her voice recordings, preserving her voice and her stories forever. As anyone who doesn't have their mom around anymore can tell you, having your mother's stories about growing up, being a kid, and overcoming life's challenges will be something that you and your kids will treasure. And let's be honest, your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a very cool way to share them. Honestly, I decided to try this out for myself and I sent it to my mom and she's not exactly a whiz at computers, but she still found it really easy to use. My mom might have had a little more unusual childhood than a lot of mothers do, so I'm really glad to have this. And I think you'll be glad to give one to your mother too. So check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code HAUNTINGS at checkout for 10% off. 
create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code HAUNTINGS for 10% off today. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in the middle of season four of the podcast, Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, getting almost really past the middle. I almost now changed I know, it. I know. I thought about that. Well, we kept saying deep into, and then we right. changed it to middle, and now I'm thinking that we need to change it to... You know, less episodes than I have fingers on one hand because we're getting toward the end. It's a little wordy, but you're an author. I think you could you could <laughs> yeah. figure it out. Yeah, and that might not necessarily be accurate. You know how I am. Yeah, so I don't. This was actually going to be anything. a much longer episode than it was, and then I decided, well, we better split these up some more. So. Yeah, for all I know, we might like have to go back and be like, we're not even in the middle of the season yet because you'll <laughs> yeah. change your mind and flip the script on <laughs> do me. Do something different. Uh, <laughs> well, dude, we are recording. In person, in person again this week for the yeah. first time in yeah. months. And next week probably won't be, but that's okay. Yeah, you know, at least we got a chance to do it, and then we'll. It won't be long, and we'll be able to start doing it more often. Yep. So yeah, it's it's yeah. nice to see everybody again. Yeah, it's been it it's been so long. I know. When was the last time we actually saw each uh, other? It was the. Did we record the last weekend before the? Uh, yeah, I think we recorded the weekend right before the the lockdown because I, I had I was in town. I had a, a, a dinner on Friday night and a tour on Saturday, and I think we recorded that weekend. Okay, was that sure. when we were like the finishing our like backlog of stuff? I'm like, oh, we're banking these yeah. for like <laughs> yeah. months. Yeah, and we, oh yeah, because we did. We because lucked then out. We, we didn't. It was halfway through the pandemic right. before we said, oh, and by the way, this is the first <laughs> yeah. time we're recording one since all this started. And that was way into it. Yeah. So, and we know. just did not acknowledge that like, hey, we recorded this two months ago. So any <laughs> right. jokes we make right. about, you know, yeah. anything is yeah, just disregard that. <laughs> right. Uh, so, OK, the 2020, it sucks. The world's weird, but things are starting to come back around. Yes. We're still trying to figure out how to deal. What do you got coming up? Well, we we have been dealing things as you know, I was talking to some people last night. You know, things are starting to open up, but not so much for us here in Illinois yet. Um, we moved a phase, which means we can kind of get together a little bit. We can eat outside, you know, <laughs> which I think phase, we could have done anyway. But right. anyway. Um, we really can't start doing anything again live in person until we get to what's called phase four here, which won't be till the end of just like the MCU. So, yeah, it is getting to yeah, be that sorry. way, isn't it? So yeah. So anyway, we we've put together a couple of. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're July and August. We're going to be back rolling again, and we do have some events that are not filled already in July and August, which we're really looking forward to more than I ever thought we would be looking forward to <laughs> right. any events ever again. Right. Uh, but we do have some stuff in July and August. And, uh, it, you know, you'll, if you're listening to this the week this comes out, 
uh, keep an eye on my Facebook page because if you think that you might like to attend something in July and August, there may just be a promo code that hey, you may all be right. able to find on there. So keep that in mind. Uh, that'll be coming up the week that this uh, the show airs. So nice. That's yeah, uh, yeah. Facebook.com slash author TT. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. And I think most people probably find or know that page, sure. I think, because we've been doing all those Friday night quarantine things. But we're also going to be doing, um, and because we all can't get right out and get back together and do events again, we're going to do a couple of private Zoom sessions on June 13th and June 20th. And those are going to be uh, private ticketed events. Um, it's only $13. And we don't care if it's you that sign up and everyone in your house watches it. doesn't matter yeah. to us. Uh, but we're going to be giving out private links to that Zoom session. It'll be a limited number of people. And I'm going to be doing on the 13th, I'm going to be doing um, a live stream with the Bell Witch. Um, nice. It's the dinner that we do, except, you know, adapted for um, for a live stream audience. And then we're going to be doing uh, the spirit world, which would be spiritualism and seances and, and Ouija boards and all that stuff. And that'll mm-hmm. be on the 20th. So that stuff is posted. We just posted it on Friday, the, this just this past Friday. And um, they're starting to fill up. So if you're interested in doing that, just go to AmericanHauntings.net and you will find not only that, but you'll find the, you know, the events that we have coming up and stuff. But like I said, watch uh, as far as the July and August events, keep an eye out on the website because we're going to be doing some some sales stuff on that, you know, because we've been doing that uh, since the pandemic started. We started that uh, promo code spooky thing yeah. where people could get the free tote bags. We have been through... Lisa, how many would you say? I mean, hundreds of tote bags. <laughs> I mean, nice. so it's been nice. It's been great. People have been really great uh, because, I mean, you know, little guys like us, no one no one is helping us, right. <laughs> you know, except for our people, our friends. You know, our, our customers have been really great during this whole thing. So it's been really cool. So we are going to continue that at least until the lockdown comes to an end. And I'm sure we'll come up with something new. But we also have one more new thing that we announced last week. And I thought this was the perfect place to talk about it. Okay. Because this is where the name came from during our... Um, our season of the Velisca and the yep. X-Man, yep. Uh, we came up with the Morbid Curious. We started talking I about love that. It. And we said, we got to use this name for something. We have to do it. And this was like about a year ago. And I said, mm-hmm. I think I told you off the off the, the podcast, I said, you know, I think it would be a great name for, well, it'd be a great name for a band, but it'd yes. also be a great name for uh, like a magazine or something. And we should really think about doing something I like said, that. I said, what's so, a magazine? I know, right? <laughs> no. uh, but we decided that a year later, we finally decided to pull the trigger on this thing. So, yeah, tell me all about this. Yeah, well, it's going to be, it won't be like a, a glossy, like, you know, People Magazine or right. Entertainment Weekly. It'll be more like a journal, which means it's going to be a different sized kind of thin, mm-hmm. like a book. Yeah. And we're going to do it twice a year. And it's going to be contributed by whoever. Um, listeners, friends, other authors, um, conference speakers, whoever, you know, we're going to be, I've had a lot of interest already of people getting in touch with me, telling me, oh, I'd love to do an article for this. And it's, you know, it's going to be a journal. It's going to be uh, ghosts, hauntings, true crime, anything historical, um, the dark side of American history. Yeah. Essentially, it's, it's essentially the 
the format of the podcast, but it's going to be um, a journal to go along with it. So we're mm-hmm. going to do it two times a year. We are looking for some writers. We've had a lot of interest from a, you know a lot of people talking about it. In fact, I've even gotten an article already in like the first four days. We've oh, already nice. gotten something. So, uh, But we, we will be looking for writers. So if that's something that you would be interested in, go to the website, AmericanHauntings.net. You'll find the, uh, the, the image there for the Morbid Curious, and uh, we will be working on our first issue. The deadline for articles on that will be August first and then that will make it so that we can put out a fall issue uh, for the autumnal equinox and then we'll do one in the spring also that's our that's our plan nice so, any of those things that you're interested in the occult the unexplained whatever we're we're interested in looking at your stuff so anyway there you go awesome uh, do you have like designs and stuff already are you working on that in the back end or yeah we'll we'll um we'll start putting it together um i'm i'm still thinking about i'm i'm in the middle of yet another um don't say quarantine project okay so i'm i'm wrapping that up Mm -hmm. and uh but i have been putting it in the back of my head sure as far as you know how we want it to look yeah that kind of thing so it'll be we'll keep it fairly consistent but i mean if if you like the designs of our books it's gonna be Mm -hmm. that same kind of thing it'll be similar to that but more of a journal form got it awesome well i'm excited i'm gonna submit a bunch of stories under different names and then just see (laughs) if you like any of them and be like yeah just see how many times Uh i get rejected um okay well i mean speaking of you know user generated content let's talk about (laughs) listener reviews here we got some great reviews even in quarantine and i want to give some shout outs real quick so this first one comes to us from bernie campos it says hi guys i've been waiting till i was caught up before submitting my review and subsequent five-star rating thank you i found your podcast last fall and have been slowly binge listening yes i realize that's contradictory but i listen (laughs) at work or i can at times for several hours and then not for days i live in central illinois a little north of champagne so i enjoy being able to relate to places such as Alton, Blue Island, ETC. I love how easy you both make it to uh, to you all. I love how easy you both make it look to blend history, legend, humor, wit, and spookiness. Each season is better than the last. With the New Orleans season, my favorite. You have brought to you've brought to life, pun intended, a part of the great city that I was unaware existed. Loving the partnership of history and hauntings. Troy, your research is meticulous. Cody, your insight's spot on. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to more. So thank you for that review. And this next one is from Insandin88. I don't know. I can never tell with these names, but I love it. So one of the best. Um, as as an as an over-the-road truck driver, I have a lot of time to dive into podcasts. As soon as I listened to the first episode, I was hooked and proceeded to binge every episode available. Troy and Cody have provided me with many entertaining hours on the road, except for that one episode where one of them put down a coffee mug on the table, and the sound made me think that one of my tires had exploded. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for the great content. Can't wait to see what's in store for the future. Um, I put that one in there, I mean, because it's nice, but um, I guarantee you it was some kind of alcohol, and we put it down <laughs> on the table and weren't thinking. Um yeah, so thank you for that review. And then I uh, got another one here. It's just from J- JCP Nicole 13. It says, I stopped watching television years ago and tend to read or listen to podcasts and books on tape. I'm pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed this podcast. The history and supernatural mixed into one makes us feel like educational and entertaining at the same time. Keep up the hard, good work. So thank you very much for that. And then, Troy, you have something. Yeah, I've got one too. Um, and it was sent just direct via email and i'm just gonna say it's from heather p because she may not i don't know if she wants me to use her last name okay. but it said hello troy and cody and lisa too of course 
says, a couple of weeks ago, I had a brainstorm that I wanted to take a weekend getaway trip to New Orleans for my 40th birthday in September. And then I remembered your podcast was just beginning its New Orleans season when I fell off the podcast wagon several months ago. So now I've caught up on the podcast in less than three days, which has resulted in multiple pages of notes, airline tickets purchased, and a reservation at the Hotel Villa Convento, mentioned in the Haunted Hotels episode, along with an ever-expanding list of many places to revisit, memories from our honeymoon trip in 2003, and basically every location you've mentioned this season. I've loved the American Hauntings podcast from the beginning. Troy's monologues and the resulting banner with Cody in the discussion portion make for an excellent blend of education and entertainment. And since stumbling across the podcast, I've taken a Haunted Alton tour, a Ghosts of the River Road tour, attended the Evening with Lizzie Borden dinner last year, and also attended the Haunted America conference. Not to mention the multiple books I've purchased. I've also ordered Troy's New Orleans books, One Must Be Prepared, after all. Because I just had to know more. You could say I've become a bit of an addict. But there's a reason I keep coming back to learn more. The research is unparalleled, and Troy demonstrates an absolute passion for the topics he discusses in each and every episode. Listening to the New Orleans season has reminded me of how much I love visiting 17 years ago and how much I want to go back and experience all that again, this time with more knowledge of the incredible city. City. Now that I've layered on the flattery, all of it deserved, I wonder if you've considered listing and linking the locations you've mentioned and your own favorite spots in the cities you've discussed. An American Hauntings travel guide, if you will. Hmm. That would be an amazing resource for the people who love to check out the weird and fascinating places you talk about and want the good food and drinks, too. Thanks for your excellent podcast. Look forward to whatever you guys decide to tackle next. That's not a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. So that's and that's why I wanted to run that by you because it was a pretty cool idea. Yeah. Well, so. wh- where better to do it than on air, right? <laughs> no, that's that's. I mean, that the whole email is very flattering and and very kind. And that no, it's a great idea. I yeah. mean, you could probably figure something like that out. I mean, mm-hmm. pretty easily and roll it into something else. Yeah, um, we could just I make like a it. list with links to those places, the hotels that we mentioned in the episodes and yeah. all that stuff. It would, probably wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, there, I mean, so. yeah, there's a. I, I try to do some of that stuff in the show notes, but not mm-hmm. like but that can't extensive. Do everything. But, but maybe we, we, could we could do everything. We could just add it in just for each episode. Yeah. You know, the hotels or just put a link to the hotel. Yeah. You know, or the bar or whatever. Well, you know, that's interesting because I, when I was in the early days of lore, when I was listening to that, yeah, I, yeah. I started kind of mapping out a little bit. It's like, oh, if he was talking a lot about Pacific Northwest stuff. And I was like, this would be a very interesting thing to do a tour based off of his podcast, some mm-hmm. of these different places. But somebody's going to visit the Midwest or New yeah. Orleans or something like that, yeah. or even Velisca, or wants to ride the, the Velisca, uh, the axe murder train kind of thing, you know? We <laughs> yeah. could map some of that stuff out and link to things. That could be interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, let's revisit this. Okay, will do. Later on. Um, are you ready to dive in? Sure. Yeah, I'm ready. I wanted to start off. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, can, you just, can you just give me and, and other people an update? Uh, what is the Dead Men Tell No Tales series? You have oh, a lot yeah, of things about a, this. Yeah, that's a series of books that I have written and um, it's a combination of ghosts and crime Mm -hmm. Um, and not every one of the books necessarily is a ghost story yeah some of them are just historical crime Uh, but for the most part there is some kind of ghost story involved in each one of those books or at least something supernatural Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't honestly I don't remember off the top of my head how many books are in that series now it's like 15 or 16 I think uh, but I just that's those are my two passions, historical crime and ghosts connected and hooked together. And yeah. So uh, I put together a series of books on that. And so I thought, well, we'll just call that this section of the podcast, 
you know, Dead Men Do Tell Tales Part One, Part Two, right. however many parts they're going to be on this. Right. One, so. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Just I knew that was kind of <laughs> yeah. a running trend, and yeah. I wanted to just clear the air yeah, and see. It's if... a whole series of books. So awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, re- how it relates to this story. So you've mentioned it a thousand times, but New Orleans is a city that was built on sin. We've said it before. We'll say it again. Yeah. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. <laughs> um, in the end, it would be as property as the United States that New Orleans would embark upon its golden age of yeah, crime. Yeah. The, the first murder. section of this <laughs> yeah. was as seen previously on. Yes. You know, Exactly. It was just a quick reminder. Sure. Then you said in 1855, reporters said that the city was suffering under a reign of terror. And you had this, a couple quotes here I want to read. So by the late 1850s, it was reported that inquests were held for as many as two murdered persons each week. And that it was common knowledge that at least two thirds of the homicides committed in the underworld districts were never reported to the police and the bodies of the victims were never found. And you said in 1861. To the alligators. Right. Yeah. You said in 1861, the criminal sheriff of, uh, Orleans Parish was quoted as saying that the place was a, quote, perfect hell on earth and that, quote, nothing could put an end to the murders, manslaughters and deadly assaults till it was made uh, penal to carry arms. Uh, so it sounds like a great place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So anybody could carry a firearm without a permit, sure. um, which is, is great. Well, that's why they tried to do that. You know, in a lot of Western towns, they would, you know, you had to turn in your guns at the sheriff's office or at the livery stable before you could go out drinking uh-huh. because it's the only way they could keep you from killing yeah, each other. Right. And this probably could have benefited from something like that. And, yeah. uh, but it was just too hard to do. It was just too big of a place. And there were just too many taverns and dance halls and oh, bordellos and, you know, there's just too much. And let's get into that. So you said on St. Charles Avenue alone, uh, between Canal Street and Lafayette Square, there were 45 places where <laughs> liquor was sold. Nearly all of them were uh, distributable. This makes me think that, like, Grafton could have been so cool <laughs> right. with all the saloons, the right. bloody bucket. And I, sure. I can't remember how many bars or saloons you yeah, said they had back they then. They had, like, 26. And that, in you know, you're talking about a tiny little stretch of street, a lot less than this. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah. <sighs> Still on the river, man. It could have been. It, what could yeah. have been. Yeah, it would have been interesting, that's for sure. And, so. and this is a... a quote from your writing that I actually text somebody today because I said, this is like my new favorite thing. It says, and where there is whiskey and women, there is murder. And where there is murder, well, ghosts and hauntings are sure to follow. Um, I love that. Uh, whiskey and women, murder, great. Uh, so let's talk about the Carrollton Jail. So it seems like just right off the bat, what we're going to talk about in the story, like there's a lot of like poltergeisty type activity, mm-hmm. like really interactive right, kind of right. hauntings and things, um, which is something that we talk about every now and then, but we don't see... As often, I feel like. So that's why this episode in particular has me really excited. So it was built around 1850, officially known as Jefferson Parish Prison, but named for General William Carroll as as that was a town laid out about five miles from the boundary of New Orleans. And then in 1835, the New Orleans and Carrollton Railroad was constructed to connect that city in the small town. Today, you said it's used as the St. Charles Ave streetcar line, and it's the oldest continually operating line of public transit in America. Yeah, it runs just down St. Charles Avenue all the way down to, you know, along Canal. Mm-hmm. down to the to the riverfront and that's and you can hop on it and you get a pass all day and it's just it's cool it's just really cool to to do it so it's, you had me walking around that whole city the well, whole yeah, time we could have hopped go, well but then it, it goes clear up to like you know to the other parts of the city it's, right we were mostly in the french quarter when we were there so, no that's fair I, I enjoyed the walking except when it would just randomly rain yeah and, well yeah that's normal. just i'm mean, yeah, humid summer and miserable yeah. but it was yeah. great uh, so the town's officially incorporated in 1841 and then annexed in 1874 
Let's talk about this prison a little bit. You said many who stayed in the prison never left for a variety of reasons. So suicide was common, disease, violence, hangings, even a lynching. So talk about traumatic history. I mean, right, this place right. checks off all the boxes <laughs> all and boxes. more. Most jails do. That's yeah. why you find so many haunted jails and prisons, because, you know, you have a constant... Everything that causes a place to be haunted, uh, a jail has, like, all of those things... Mm-hmm. All the time in one concentrated area, so it's laugh. no surprise that you know jails and police stations get are become so haunted. It's just not common that well, not anymore anyway. That you hear about them or read about them in the newspapers mm-hmm. being haunted. But you know, it's funny. This was this was right around the turn of the last century where this made all the newspapers, and you know they were telling these stories in print, and these guys were actually admitting that the place was haunted, yeah. and they were quick to speak about it. Um, I've collected a lot of stuff like from Chicago and it's from early 1900s where, you know, all these haunted police stations and jails, including the old Cook County jail that was downtown, you know, was extremely haunted Mm -hmm. and everybody was more than willing to admit to the fact that it was haunted. Uh, you just don't run into that so much today. I was going to ask, know, like maybe not, like in Florida or something, yeah, it's like, not but common. it's not in the newspapers no, at it's least. It's just not common. That, Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think that, you know, it's taboo. Or? Yeah, I think we've entered a different, it, you know, it's a whole, it's a completely different time, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's just not as commonly accepted. I mean, you can go back through old newspapers and from the 1890s through May, I don't know, 1915, 1920. Well, really up until World War One. And you'll find ghost stories in just about, I mean, at least once a week, there'll be ghost stories in major city newspapers. When I was working on uh, the new edition of Haunted St. Louis a couple of years ago, I found tons and tons of ghost stories all from the newspaper. Yeah. You know, and because it was common to report this stuff. And sometimes it would be very tongue in cheek. And, sure. But other times it wasn't. They were dead serious. And that's what you got with the Carrollton Jail. They were completely serious mm-hmm. about the things that were going on there. They weren't, they weren't joking about it. They, they really, I mean, officers were transferring out to other precincts. They didn't want to work there anymore after they got a little taste of the stuff that was happening. Right. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to me. Cause I mean, you think about like the tabloids and things and shit that they just completely make up now. It's like, like about celebrities and stuff like that. Like, why wouldn't they just talk about, you know, this, some, some of these hauntings and things. Why are this, why is this any more bizarre? I guess I see some like alien stuff in there every now and then, but (laughs) ghosts, not so much, but, uh, so back to this prison. So the prison's under the authority of Sergeant William Clifton, uh, the police commander of the district. And on October 9th, 1899, the first detailed reports about the supernatural in the Paris uh, appear in print. Let's talk about this, what I'm calling a haunted wall. Yeah, I don't know what else <laughs> to know? call it. See, that's a, that's another case of where this story is just printed verbatim in the paper and yeah. nobody tries to make any sense out of it at <laughs> right. all. Because, I mean, let's be honest, we're talking about a haunted wall, which they, they think has something to do with a guy who had had murdered his wife and then tried to make soap out of her body. Very fight clubby, yeah. yeah. And then supposedly he was beaten to death there at that wall, Mm -hmm. which is just something, well, that was just something he happened to remember that had happened a few years ago. We don't even know if that's the case. Sure. um, And so then people start getting pushed away from the wall, knocked down, knocked onto the floor and stuff. And I just thought, how... (laughs) That's the first thing they came up with is, oh, there must be a ghost in the wall. Yeah. and But it, I mean, when you hear the whole story, I guess it makes sense, but I've never heard of anything like that before. Yeah. Well, I um, liked, you tell the story and it's very like, 
I don't know. It's not even out of a movie because I'm sure this just happens in real life, but it's very much like, oh, the woman's the one that like sees the ghost and gets pushed and all the guys are laughing at her. And then she's like, all right, well, you step up and do it. And then they all do. And then they all get thrown too. And it's like, yeah, okay. It's not just like in her head, you know, like this is something that's actually happened. I actually put in my notes, uh, it's like Clifton remembered a story about a man who killed his wife and boiled her body to make soap. I put a note in here because I listened to you and I was like, don't just gloss over that part. What are you, ta- like, what are you talking <laughs> no, about? Right. Like, that's so fucking bizarre. Um, but anyway, so. But then, but then you go, well, it's New Orleans. Well, yeah, yeah it's, you know, <laughs> I, know hey. I think I, I even say that a couple times in the story. Well, you do. Yeah, it is New Orleans. You do. So just shrug. Yeah. I expect it. Um, so we think that they might have had the, the wrong ghost because a day or so later, uh, Clifton salutes a picture of General Beauregard, if you remember from our previous episodes that he had hanging on his wall and that picture immediately comes crashing down. No one could find an explanation for how it fell because everything seemed to be intact. Um, decides to recreate the event the next <laughs> night and then a mirror flies off his wall. Like, dude, you got to stop saluting the shit. <laughs> yeah, like, right, everything in your right. place is going to be broken. Um, <laughs> several nights later, Clifton's sitting at his desk and he's suddenly held by the shoulders and his chair spun completely around. Now that's kind of fun. That is. That that's seems like a little funny. kid kind of ghost Until prank Until it thing. chokes him. Yes, yeah. and that, that does happen. And I like how, he, so he has a sofa in his office. Um, an officer tries to take a nap. Sofa lurches forward from the wall and back to the wall. Then it happens again. And then, well, and and again. then well, now we just glossed over the fact that a guy keeps a couch in his office because yeah. these guys sleep on duty. Yeah, that's, you know? that so is a we, good point. We just kind of skip over that part, but or they did anyway. That is a good point. Story. So yeah, well, you know, you're pulling all nighters. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so it happens again, and again, and then you say they finally moved the couch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's you can't figure out any other way to stop it. Let's just move it to a different yep, wall. I like it. I like it. Uh, there's an officer named uh, Jules Alcoin who saw a painting of. Of Admiral Dewey spinning as if it had like a nail in the center. But th- so this sounds to me like something out of like it a Ghostbusters movie. No, it was some. I think it was. I think it was a paper or something they torn out of like um, a Harper's Weekly or something oh, like a okay. newspaper kind of magazine. And then somebody glued it on the wall uh-huh. just to you know hanging up pictures. Oh, okay, okay. But it's which is makes even less sense. Yeah, because it was it was he it, said it was spinning on the wall. Yeah, even though it was glued to the wall. <laughs> it's bizarre. When, when he calls somebody to come and look at it, look at this! I swear to God, it was just spinning. Of course, they believe him because all the other they've crazy been trying shit. to sleep in there, and the couch kept throwing them on the floor. But um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even make sense that it was spinning, but yet he swore that it was. Yeah, so I don't know. It's biz- know. it's biz- little bizarre stories. And it so is. this and other events, like you said, cause a bunch of officers like, okay, can I get a transfer? Yeah, like the you know that out of here. Let's talk a little bit about. Harvey, come back. <laughs> I guess that's it. Harvey, come back. Um, so Harvey Brewer, gambler, former prisoner, was a gigantic man who walked with a severe limp. He said this impairment did not stop him from killing two racecourse jockeys by breaking their necks with his bare hands and then cutting out the tongues of their horses. This makes, for some reason, it makes me think of like Carl Panzram yeah. or something. Because I know the Sopranos. I see. I haven't I haven't watched The Sopranos, and I get shit for it all the time. Um, but now I'm kind of curious. The horse lost a lot of money. Let's burn down the barn. Fuck it. Oh, well, okay. That's yeah. the thing that happens. Um, so that's that's what that makes me think of. But so Harvey's been brought. I want you to clear something up in a minute because I yes. got a little confused. So Harvey's been brought to the jail. Last seen standing in the uh, corridor in handcuffs with a cold stump of cigar. He escaped soon after. Was never captured. He, his escape left two dead guards and a mystery behind. 
Um, so what's up he with this Robert two guards Brewer when he guy? Was, when he was running, okay, so he is Robert Brewer. He he used it was a fake because they never they he he disappeared. He uh-huh. killed two of the guards and he escaped. Right, and then that was kind of the joke when they talked about him. You know, hearing limping footsteps. Well, you know, maybe it's Harvey come back, and then he says, "Oh no, he'll never see the inside of this jail again." Uh huh. Well, it turned out that at the same time this had happened in Pennsylvania, there had been this big old guy who had you know was down on his luck that was selling newspapers and had gone blind and then he and he died he was found dead on the street okay. so when they looked in his in his effects they found papers that showed that his name wasn't Robert Brewer it was Harvey Brewer got it he was the guy missing from New Orleans and the night that he died was the night they started to hear those limping footsteps in the station and then you know he has that encounter with the cloud of tobacco smoke. So, yes, uh, Harvey's ghost came back to the Carrollton Jail. Okay, so. so my thinking was, no, this man is still alive, and no, he no, might no. physically be walking no, around no, the jail. No, no, um, that's he, why I got he, he, he's using a fake name. Got and it. And then the police in Pennsylvania realized that it was him. Okay, that makes way more sense. Okay, um, moving on to the next section that I just titled "More Shenanigans." Um, the <laughs> second, the second floor courtroom had been refurbished, so it used to house condemned men. Um, officers at one point follow footsteps up to a room where a docket book, which you say is large and heavy, yeah, um, it just keeps track of what trials are. At the time, everything was handwritten. Right, so that flies across um, from the judge's desk. At one point, Clifton woke up at his desk feeling strong hands, like you mentioned, gripping his throat from an unknown source, but it left bruises on his neck, mm-hmm. which seems like very different that from a lot of stories. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, th- yeah, that's just a whole other kind of level of like <laughs> poltergeisty yeah. type shit. Um, and then Officer Foster spots two young girls, went to speak with them, and they vanished before his eyes. And hold on. He believes that the they were the ghosts of two young women who had been imprisoned there for carving out the liver of their shared lover. That is all the information I could find about them. <laughs> Although I believe they were, um, I believe the original description, it was two mulatto girls. Oh, right. Um, well, thank you for leaving that out. Yeah, I just left that out. But that's the only other information I could find about them. I don't know anything about that case. Yeah. I would have liked to have find out, found out more about sure. it, but I couldn't find anything. Yeah, so. well, I just wanted to say... It was one of those things mentioned in passing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If I get it's to, New Orleans, it's normal. It's New Orleans. Know, then it, they turned him into soap. No, if, if I get to choose, I think this is how I'd want to go out, because it means that <laughs> then at least two people have wanted to date me. <laughs> yeah, you know? Right. <laughs> anyway, so Foster also reports seeing a deceased former uh, prison officer, Sergeant Shoemaker, standing in Clifton's office, and then he just disappears he'd been dead for a year like mm-hmm. so that sucks man like i'm sure that that was not a place that he would want to be no i wouldn't think so maybe it's uh, just i don't know maybe you get maybe people get stuck just places get stuck. or maybe like if a place has so many ghosts and energy it's just like you are just bound you get sucked back yeah in. you get sucked right. back in who right. knows i don't know maybe we'll find out maybe we won't <laughs> let's move on talk about cell number three Notorious for strange events, uh, Charles Marquez was held there and he was found in the morning, very badly beaten, scratched up and everything. But he's like, wasn't any of the cops, yeah, which yeah. I mean, you'd think I know, make, right? make something up at least or try to rationalize. But no, right. he's like, no, it wasn't any of them. It was an invisible thing. Couldn't tell you anything about, you know, who it was. They said every criminal who was put in there met pretty much a similar fate. Um, and so later it's discovered that three murderers were put in there and they all essentially <laughs> yeah. killed each other like yeah, a battle royale great kind of thing. Great idea. Yeah. yeah, who came up with this I idea? I don't know. It was crowded. Do we know anything about these people or something that's, just found? That's all they said. Yeah. I mean, this this was a story that they were, the cops were passing on to the sure. reporter who, you know, may have, it is New Orleans, may have taken some dramatic of license course. with the story. But 
on the other hand, it is, it is, it's, if it didn't happen, it should have happened. It should have right? happened. So, Something like that definitely happened. cell number three. Yes, right? of course. Right. And the prison's finally torn down in 1937. And like, you had a nice visual about like dust forming around like invisible outlines of, of people, that's you know? That's what they said. Yeah, the legend has that's it. That's what they claimed. Um, yeah. No, that's a, that's a very dramatic way to end <laughs> that section. Let's move on to what might possibly be. <laughs> My favorite story from New Orleans so far. I don't know if favorite's the right word. It is the right word, but and I want to talk. It's probably my favorite. It's it's my favorite location. Okay, and, you know, and just we'll, because we'll go through it your just is. let's go through your research <laughs> yeah. part at the end of it. I want okay. I just want to talk about this. Yeah. Um. So well, I, that's why I saved that to the end. Yes. I didn't want to ruin you know. And, oh no. Oh, if you look I didn't at, want to ruin a good story if, with facts. And <laughs> I, if you look at my notes, it's all caps, and I'm pissed. And I was like, Are you kidding me? But because I I read what you said. But then it didn't click to me until I got to the end. So I love this quote. You said, it's a story that has a little of everything. Sex, pirates, foreign intrigue, blood pouring into the street, hacked off limbs, brutal revenge. And did I mention sex? (laughs) So like already you have my attention, right? (laughs) So this Sultan's Palace, it's a mansion built by Dr. Joseph Garday at the corner of Orleans and Dauphine Street in 1836. It's eventually sold to Jean-Baptiste Lepre. I'm trying to work on the French pronunciation guy that left this comment. Thank you. Um, who added the cast iron grill work to the balconies, which, you know, is very famous. And I actually Googled a picture of this to see if I had recognized this we've, we've place. I knew that we walked by yeah. it, but I was like, I didn't, we saw it. I didn't yeah. really you think anything of it. Remember it. I didn't know that this great story. Um, so he eventually falls on hard times, eventually forced to rent out his wonderful home in 1878. So his tenant, a mysterious Turk who claimed to be a deposed sultan. So this all started when a warship comes in at night and a wealthy Asian man asks if the property might be available for lease. Turns out the man was not a sultan, but the brother of one who had fled with his brother's wife, all his belongings, an entourage, security, and a harem. Is that harem? How do you... Harem. 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 Okay. Uh, which is very interesting. It's very like... Uh, it reminds me of like... The, the like Helen of Troy kind of well, thing. Well, this is like a, a combination. Different. This is a this this story or this guy. Yeah, this guy and his entourage is like a perfect stereotype of every uh, Arabic, Turkish, yes, Oriental, you know, thing that no one understood at the time. Sure, he's like perfect combination of all those things. None of it makes sense because there isn't a single thing. I mean, it, it's like everything. Everything you think of from, right. you know, the the mystical Orient, you know, right. it, it's all in this one guy, which should right there, everyone should flag. already be suspicious. Yes. So, so Lepre had uh, to move himself and his family out while the quote unquote Sultan turned his house into an Eastern pleasure palace, which sounds dope. Um, <laughs> but he really goes all out decking, the, decking this place out. Uh, then So they said the neighbors could hear the women that were in there but could never see them uh, very mysterious right, because they were in the harem and right. so they were guarded by a fortress you know, and the guards yeah, right yeah. so you you know no one else was supposed to mess with uh, you know the harem right so. right well he should have taken his own advice apparently but um so <laughs> one night a terrible storm came into the city and with it an unfamiliar ship that next morning, neighbors passing by the mansion noticed the trickles of blood were running out from under the iron gates, which is weird because, you know, they usually had armed guards with curly swords and not trickles of blood. <laughs> they decided to force it open. They find three dead servants in the courtyard. And this, okay, this this paragraph got me going. Okay, so a massacre had occurred at the house. Blood splattered the floor and walls. Headless bodies and amputated limbs were scattered about, all of them butchered by sword or axe. No room without a horrific scene. The bodies and limbs were flung about, mutilated and burned in such a way that it was impossible to tell which body part belonged to what person. No exact count of the dead was ever determined. Metal as hell, and I love it. (laughs) 
Many were, so you said many were subjected to sexual assaults, the details of which we don't even know. And I don't really want to talk about, but I did want to mention, is it weird that like, that the paragraph above, I loved it. I It's so brutal. Decapitations, blood on the walls, great. Anytime you even mention like a minor sexual assault, I'm like, can we just not? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't get why. Why is I that know. so taboo? And the other stuff, I'm like, yes, yeah. let's go. It just makes me feel uncomfortable. But So we won't talk about that. But the Sultan's mutilated bodies found in the garden uh, where he'd been buried alive, where he choked on mouthfuls of dirt, which sounds like an easy way to go compared to everybody else. Over his hasty grave, a letter had been left bearing an inscription in Arabic that read, The justice of heaven is satisfied, and the date tree shall grow on the traitor's tomb. It is said that a tall tree did it grow on the spot, and it was locally known as the tree of death. So my first note after this was, in all caps, I want to see the tree of death. And then my next note after this was, <laughs> so wait, so this might not even have happened? <laughs> okay, what what do we know? You can only find some stuff well, in books. Yeah, what do you think? What do you think? Um, you know, it's... I mean, the story... As I said in this monologue, the story had to have gotten started for some reason. Right. So, I mean, there has to be something to it. And like I said, the first mention I ever found of it was in the book, uh, that History of Louisiana book, which was written in 1867, which is kind of either, depends on the version of the legend you hear, is either before or after this actually happened. Okay. But it did say that there was a sultan who was murdered, but... Um, he was, it never goes into any kind of detail. There was no slaughter or anything like that. But, um, I did like the quote from that book where the guy said that the ship, um, was filled with a body of men who wore the scowling appearance of malefactors and ministers of blood. Yeah. I thought, and then I said that would make a great band name and it would, wouldn't it? Yeah, hell yeah. I don't even know if you need the malefactors, just ministers of blood. Well, I think then they have the album Morbid Curious. Or oh, yeah, right. 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 And, and you know, circle. it would be those guys that do the. You know, that, oh, and you I can have, understand what I have saying. gigabytes of that. Yeah, exactly. So, but then I found it again in, in Legends of Louisiana, which is about as accurate as. Well, the funny thing is, is that, you know, that, that, that Levine, that Gene Levine book that I always talk about how inaccurate that Ghost Stories in New Orleans book is. Oh, yeah. It's not even in there. Oh, so it's that so bad. It's that bad. Damn. But I found it in this book, and it's it's basically the same story, um, but it's not as graphic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a, a lot of people killed. So, but there's no mention of it in any newspapers. There's nothing in police reports. There's no official record that... That massacre ever took place at that house. Maybe they were so rich they covered it all. I don't know, man. <laughs> there's, there's something I want to believe this story. I know, and so do I, because I love this. I mean, I just there's just something cool about it's this a story. Great, it's, it's a, a great, great story, story. Yeah. and it's a, such a cool New Orleans story. But there's so many red flags throughout the entire story that makes you wonder if there's anything true about it at all. But yeah. it's still it's still a cool story. And then there are ghost stories attached to the building. Yes, you look- know. So we'll maybe them. they don't have anything to do with people being mutilated and beheaded, but they're good stories. Right. You know? And so we know the building's haunted and maybe it's one of those things where, you know, the story just sort of grew over time. So, you know, like the Myrtle's plantation, mm-hmm. we, we feel the need to add more things to make the story better because just seeing a man in oriental robes is really not that interesting. Not doing but it. we did find there was a story from 1867 about a sultan that was murdered there. So, you know, what if this sultan had brought all these... So you see how it grows. Yep. yep. And I think that... And New Orleans is, is notorious for that, too. As we talked about, I mean, that was our two-part Madame LaLaurie story. Yes. Where, you know, that stuff was so blown out of proportion. Not that she wasn't, you know 
horrible, horrible, horrible person. But, you know, the things that she supposedly did as if, you know, starving your slaves wasn't bad enough, you had to experiment on them too, you know? So this is kind of the same kind of thing. So somebody was probably murdered here, but let's, let's talk about his harem and let's talk about, let's make it really a big story. And that's probably what happened, but it doesn't change the fact that for, you know, 150 years, people have talked about the place being haunted. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, they seem pretty reliable. I mean, these are people who don't have any reason to make this stuff up. Yeah. I mean, what what good does it do them to talk about this? I mean, sure, they got mentioned in the newspaper, but, you know, the one woman was, you know, at the time she was just starting her career, but she ended up becoming like internationally famous. So she really didn't need a ghost story, you know, that she told in the newspaper when she was just starting out as a dancer. Is that you know? uh, Poston? Virgie yeah, Poston? Virgie Poston. Or, yeah. Oh, oh po- yeah. Poston. Her, okay. Gypsy was her, uh, her, the name she used on stage, Gypsy uh-huh. Poston. So she really gotcha. became well known, but um, and at the time she wasn't. But why would she need to make that? Up? Right. You know, there's no reason. Well, this that's an interesting story too because, like you said, she cl- she claimed to have been startled by a man in, in Oriental costume. She but she didn't know about the legends. Eventually, she sees him standing at the end of her bed, um, and she this goes on for a little bit. She abandons everything the next day. But this is what's inv- interesting interesting to me because. This was that impactful for her. It's much like the exorcism story we talked about in St. Louis, where it's like, okay, maybe this isn't exactly what happened, but this guy was going from train to St. Louis back to his job and back and right. forth, and they moved his whole family across the country. Like, these people at least believe something's right. going on. something happened. Yeah, right. like, she right. she is scared enough. It was enough, enough for her to bail. Yeah, yeah. bail, leave all yeah. of her shit. And yeah. then uh, she and her, one of her friends stop by to get some things. They hear his blood-curdling scream <laughs> just a few feet away um, from them. And she, yeah, I like how she you mentioned, like, she's like, yeah, we laugh about it now, but, like, it was pretty terrifying, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so f- something's going on. I mean, it's at least real to them. And if, right. if nothing else, even if it's just in their heads, it's very real. It's still real yeah, enough because it's, it's in their heads. Um, so 1966, the house was purchased by, purchased by uh, Jean D'Amico, uh, her husband, Frank, and a partner who converted it into luxury apartments. Uh, or is it Jean? Jean. 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 Okay. Yeah. So all these French things. I'm trying, I'm well, trying she, to pronounce yeah. it right. Yeah. And then actually she's just Jean. So we didn't even have to go fancy on her. <laughs> so yeah. Jean also sees a figure watching her sleep and she even tries to like blink a couple times and be like, <laughs> uh, is this really happening? Um, it's now owned by Nina uh, Nevins. Is that it? Yeah. Nina and, Nevins. Yeah. Nina Nevins and divided into six apartments. She said, you know, stuff still goes missing, but for the most part, Haunting scene. Yeah, yeah. seemed to have kind of dissipated and yeah. calmed down. And that's something that seems like we find after a while that yeah. that's just kind of dissipates and right. and things calm down. Um, so all's well that ends well. I, I guess. guess. Yeah, I guess. Uh, all right. Well, it's now time for our Ghost Riders segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. So our first email comes to us from Sarah. She says, hey, guys, I've been really enjoying the New Orleans season. Wanted to share with you the spooky image I captured in January 2013 when we went, to, when we went on a ghost tour in New Orleans with a stop at St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. I didn't notice this in picture uh, until picture number four. I didn't notice this in the picture until four or five years later. At the end of the row, tombs on the left, it almost looks like a hooded figure stepping into view. Maybe it's Marie Laveau, maybe not. I've included the original and a close-up. To be fair, there were others on the tour with us, and uh, this was the part where we were able to explore a little on our own. Could be another tourist. Let me know what you think. So I'll put the pictures in the show notes somewhere. People can check it out. I looked at it this morning. Um, definitely looks like something's leaning over. Oh, yeah? Who knows? It's a haunted cemetery, but um, but I... And I, and I also really appreciate her being like, to be fair, could just be this. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. So thank you so much for listening. And, um, you know, hope you had a good time on, on that tour. 
This next one comes to us from Terry Lane. It says, this podcast is fantastic. Enjoy listening to the storytelling and the, quote, hilarious jokes and awesome sarcasm of Cody. <laughs> says, I did that just for you, Cody. Thank you so much. Uh, based on the commentary for the first episode in season four, I also found you guys from listening to Astonishing Legends episodes on Velisca Murders. And Troy, I appreciate all your work on those 17 episodes. All was in all caps. Uh, I still have to go back to seasons one and two. You don't really have to, but you can well, if you want Season two was really good. <laughs> yeah, well, season one, that's No, you should go check it out. Just Some get, bad audio get a good, season get two. Get a good but pair of headphones. Yeah, right. Um, so, but I'll listen to all of them. Keep up the excellent work and the simply fabulous sarcasm. If, <laughs> if no one gets, I do. Uh, it's near and dear to my ears. So she knows exactly how to, to get near and dear to my heart. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for that. Um, again, American Hongs Podcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, I think that we will wrap up this episode. So guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for um the comments, thanks for the emails, thanks for sharing things, thanks for uh, really sticking with us during this pandemic, especially with American Hauntings itself. Uh, you guys, we we owe you a great debt of gratitude for really keeping things afloat for us without having any tours or events or anything that we could do. Uh, you guys coming through has been really awesome, and we we really, really appreciate it. Um, take advantage while you still can. We've still got that uh, 20% off deal with the free book bag. Uh, just use the promo code SPOOKY. Um, don't forget, we've got some live stream things coming up. Um, just go to the AmericanHauntings.net or just go to my Facebook page, the author page, and you'll find uh, all the up-to-date information there. And uh, until then, we'll see you next time. Yeah, I'm having a lot of trouble reading today, so I think I'm just going to call this one. Obviously, I've been slurring oh, and stepping good. over my words. But in this good. episode I'm of the American Hongs oh, podcast, is written by Troy Taylor, and is produced <laughs> and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows and at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have show notes, more info about the episodes and links to more from American Hauntings because American Hauntings I isn't just, just a that. podcast. Just it's literally, books, literally tours, just events, did this. and more. And our main website is AmericanHauntings.net and if you want even more from us, you can be a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail, and more. Thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment for We've the show. We've also just caught up with on continued everything. help from you, we, were running a little we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable via email, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, a bunch of other bullshit, and my carrier pigeon. Oh, yeah. Until next time, goodbye. Well, so long. See you later. Cool. I don't know. I've, usually, I've drank way more than this, but I was... I don't know if I haven't read out loud in a while. Oh, no, <laughs> I, like, I know. Well, I we're like, probably just out of practice. I think we are out of practice. I was like stumbling over these Although, emails. Although, really, I got to be honest with you, um, I don't have a... There isn't a shit ton of mistakes in these episodes. Oh, really? Episode that I did.